Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We gotcha. Google or add us on Facebook at ZandMHomes.com. It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. For the last 43 years, Kenny Aronoff has been arguably one of the most recorded session drummers in history, and that's a fact. That puts him in the same company with legendary players like Hal Blaine, Steve Gadd, Buddy Rich, Jeff Picaro, Max Roach, and a handful of others. His list of credits is absolutely astounding. From John Mellencamp to the Rolling Stones to Paul McCartney, Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Joe Jackson, Smashing Pumpkins, Rod Stewart, Elton John, and literally hundreds and hundreds more. In fact, Kenny's performances have found themselves on more than 1,300 recordings that have either gone gold, platinum, or better, resulting in more than 300 million records sold during the course of his career. And at 70 years old, there's almost nothing that has slowed this guy down. In fact, Kenny Aronoff is currently on the road with the Jim Ursay Collection, a group of top-notch musicians that have been put together by the owner of the Indianapolis Colts to play free shows around the country, including a stop at the TD Garden in Boston on July 15th. The band includes Kenny, Mike Mills from R.E.M., Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and quite a few others. And yes, I did say it was free. Kenny is a guy who grew up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, studied at both UMass and at the University of Indiana, and at the age of 22, sealed his fate forever in less than 15 seconds with the now infamous drum fill in the song Jack and Diane by John Mellencamp back in 1982. This is my conversation with the legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff on Baxi's Musical Podcast. It is so good to talk to you again. This is the third time I've interviewed you, and it's always a pleasure. One, you always have the gift of gab, which is when I found out you're doing a podcast, I was like, all right, I got to listen to this. And I listened to a couple episodes over the uh, the last week or so. Really cool. Thank you. Uh, you've, you've had some great guests so far. You, Dee Snyder and Bill Burr and Leland Slar. I mean, yeah. tell me about that. How did, how did this thing, uh, I know you're not too far into the episodes, but how did this thing start for you? Well, uh, my I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a professional speaker, and my agent is oh he he said you you need to have a podcast. I went oh come on man, the podcasts are over. It's done. He said no, it's not. So he says take a meeting with this guy Eric Schiffman, and he's he's got like a hundred employees. He's the chairman of three big companies, and he's a, he's got his own podcast, and he's very very successful in P, it's a PR company, so he knows how to market and promote the people he works with or that work with him. We had a meeting, and he's very cool and very smart. And when we were done, he said, you know, you have the right personality. You have the right everything for a podcast. And the actual, actually the podcast, especially the visual, that's why it's on YouTube. If people go to Kenny Aronoff Official, capital K, capital A, capital O, you can see these, these podcasts in, in person, you know, the visual part. And I suggest people do that because, I mean, to see Bill Burr up close or to Kevin Cronin or <laughs> Jack Blades from uh, Damn Yankees and um, Night Rangers next, Steve, Steve Lukather, we filmed in person. Uh, you know, we got Joe Bonamassa, Joe Satriani, Melissa Etheridge, 
it's only, you know, the top-notch people. To see that exchange between us <laughs> visually is really good. I would pay money to hang out with you and Lukather in a room because the two of you. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Too much. imagine? I know. I mean, I've Jeez. talked to him, too, and, oh, my God, that guy's so freaking funny. It's unbelievable. Oh, I know. I know. And, and, and the, things we, <laughs> the things we didn't say. But um, <laughs> anyway, so what, it's become a, 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 another full-time job. I, of course, they didn't tell me how much work is involved. And the reason why is because I'm one of those very, I'm a stickler. I'm very particular about every way everything looks and the way everything sounds, the verbiage. So they basically, they film in my room. I'm in the control room. I even have a neon sign now. It says the Kenny Aaron off sessions, but I'm, I'm, I'm constantly beating them up or getting them in their, their faces about that camera angles, bad. The lighting's bad. Why is my head the center of the, of the screen? It should be, you know, it should be way, there should be way less top space above my head or headroom. And, you know, I'm constantly on them, constantly revising. Uh, why does my voice sound so high? You know, uh, you know, and, and I'm a stickler. And the frustrating part is sometimes it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm paying you guys to tell me how this stuff is works. So I shouldn't know more than you. You know what I mean? But the podcast world and TV world are two different things. But the bottom line is it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress and it's getting better and better and better. The, the subscriptions is, is going very, I'm on a very high trajectory right now, but you know, I, I have a marketing team and a strategy team. Yeah. And so we put out a video. They know exactly when to release the video during the week. They know what time of day. So they're doing analytics and metrics all the time. They, they, we, we, we post on three Facebook pages, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikToks, and YouTube. Uh, on the following, uh, for the rest of the week, we post every day maybe five different small clips to promote the big clip, which is an hour, hour 10. And there's verbiage, there's all kinds of um, visual thumbnails. And it's, it's, it's a business. It's not like, we're not just setting it and forget it. It's not a casual thing. And that's the way I operate with everything. It's like, if I'm going to do it, I want to be the best. Everybody way, not in a bad way, but I just want to be the best. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it, considering how time consuming it is to do, I mean, you want to make sure it's, it's good, not just for you, but for anyone who's listening. But to do it right really makes a, a big difference. Well, I spend eight hours. I spend eight hours on every artist. I mean, I I write an intro. I do a lot of research. I put together the questions, and I as we're talking at any moment when you can't see the paper. I'm not holding anything. I've got a place where everything is, and I can move from question to question depending on the flow. And it's all about the flow. And I I, I know what I'm going to ask, but if it doesn't make sense to ask that question. I move to the next thing. Exactly. And I'm looking for things that where it can be, as you can tell, it's very conversational. Now, a big plus with this, most of these people I interview, I've performed with. <laughs> Every guest I've worked with, except Bill Burr, but we, we were friends and I did his podcast. But every guest I've performed with, that is a different angle because not only can we talk on that level, kind of like some guys inviting somebody on the show and, you know, you, you just, you hope they'll come on and you've never met them. Oh, no, I've met all these people and toured with them and, and, and made records with them or, or one or the other. And so that makes it a whole different thing. And then you're hoping you'll get these incredible stories like Jack Blades. Oh, my God. 
but he talks about playing with Sly at 20 years old. Sly Stone. Wow. Leaving pre-med. He went to pre-med for a second. <laughs> and then next thing you know, he's, he's playing bass in front of Sly Stone at his house with a party going on. And then I'll let the let, let him tell the rest of it. But <laughs> it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, um, you know, I've got a oh man, I've got a lot of people on deck that because of their schedules, like a Billy Gibbons or a Michael McDonald or a Billy Corgan. These people want to do it. I got uh, Joey Belladonna from Anthrax is up. Cedric, the entertainer, the comedian. Yeah. He's coming on. I mean, we both have wine from the same vineyard. We both have our own celebrity wine. So it's exciting. And the other thing I want to add is that I'm also trying to introduce some of the ideas that I talk about when I do my corporate speaking, which is about, you know, like I asked Leland, why Leland? What I was getting at was, hey, they aren't hiring you just because you're a great bass player. Your career of 50 years and still going strong isn't just because you're a great bass player. There's plenty of great bass players. It's because you know how to do other things that other people don't, which is knowing how to connect with people, to communicate on a personal level, and therefore now you can collaborate. That's one of my biggest skill sets. Because I used to go, why do they keep inviting me back? <laughs> it's because they want, they want me in the room. They want me there. Well, you know, I mean, I was going to ask you about that. Because when you go and look through your credits, at this point in your career, after like 40-some-odd years of being into it, you're one of the most recorded drummers of all time. I mean, right now, you're, you're kind of in, the, in the, same, the same conversation as a Steve Gadd or Jeff Picaro or you know, you know, Bernard Purdy. I mean, you know, these are just you know, some of the best drummers in the world. When you talk about that other thing that they can do, when it comes to you, when it comes to Kenny Aronoff, what is that thing that you do that nobody else does? Well, everybody has their own unique personality. There's no two people the same. And I think what happens is it gets down to a people thing. People want the, a, these people that you mentioned are people that know how to get along with people. They 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 show up on time. They have they're they're always trying to make the song brilliant. They're contributing. They're arranging. They're they're they're, they're they'll do as many takes as you want. They're team players. Like I said, they know how to connect with people, communicate, and then once you got that going, you can collaborate. And I go one step further, which I call it, I call it co-elevation. The co-elevation is, it's not, what is my North Star? And I assume it's their North Star too, but my North Star is to get the song on the radio to be a number one hit. I mean, that's, it's not about me. It's about we. It's not about just Kenny Aronoff. Tom Brady, when he won all those Super Bowls, man, it was about the team. He knows he can't, one guy can't play against 11. So that being said, I get very involved with all the other instruments and, and even the engineer and the producer and whoever. Because if I play great and they don't, the song doesn't get on the record. The song doesn't get on the record, it won't make it on the radio. And remember I said the North Stars to have a number one hit single. That's the goal, because once you're on a number one hit single, they want you back. Ooh, who played drums on that? Kenny Aronoff. Oh my God, we got to get him on our session. <laughs> I mean, that's how Lee Sklar in the section... You know, those guys, you know, Wadi Wattel, you know, Lee Spar, Russ Kunkel, and the other guys, people going like, whoa, who played on, on uh, who played the James Taylor's record? Oh, it was these guys. Well, we got to have them on Carol King's record. Oh, my God. And then they said, well, those guys are a great section. So then they started hiring the section. You, you get a reputation that they want you. So then 
what happens is that if I need the bass player to play great, or it won't make it on the record. So now all of a sudden they think that I care about what they're playing. It's all these other things that get, you know, you know, that, that I care, that I'm a team player. They want you in the room. You're funny. You're easy to get along with. And you play good. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with Carlos Alomar, who played with you know, nearly everybody as well, and uh, in particular David Bowie. And part of the conversation was, and it's absolutely true, I don't think anyone can be a long-lasting force in music if they're going to spend time simply being an asshole. Like, it, like you just couldn't do that. Exactly what you say. You have to be able to get along with people. You have to exceed the expectations that people have with you and just be a good person because otherwise, why would anybody want to hire you if your reputation is garbage? Well, that's right. And they'll put up with excellence for a while. But but then if it starts ruining the session, it's not worth it. Now, this, by the way, is applicable in any business, any sports, any corporate business. It's all about teamwork. I remember... Uh, I was taking a I was taking a course during COVID with this guy online, and um, he he gave an example uh, which was about this co elevation thing I talk about, where this that he was there mentoring takes businesses from millions to billions, billions to trillions, and he was working with this woman, and she's part of a team, and he said, well, you can't get the same results if you're doing the same thing, so you're going to have to do figure out we have to figure out what. You can do better to make this work. But she got to the point where she goes, man, this guy in that department is the biggest asshole. This was in the healthcare business. <laughs> he said, really? Yeah, he's an asshole. I can't. He won't. It's his way or no way. And he said, well, you need, you need him to go to the next level. He's part of these, you know, he's part of the four main people in this, this thing we're creating. And, he, and then finally, she was all frustrated. Well, he's impossible. And she said, you know, you know what the problem is? She said, "No, what?" She thought she he she was gonna he was gonna say to him. He says, "You're the problem." Well, what do you mean? You have to figure out how to get this guy to work with you. Otherwise, you're in trouble. So you figure it out. You can't sit there and say, "Well, he's impossible." Uh, excuse me, you got to make it work. Figure it out. Have a talk with him. Say, "Look, if we don't get along, blah 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 blah. Let's make this work. It'll be better for the both of us." Because the team teams win Super Bowls. Teams win World Series. Teams win NBA titles and Stanley Cups. Not individuals. Right. I mean, you want to be the MVP on your team, but it's for the team. It's for the team. One guy can't beat 11. But you must, I mean, you must see that a lot when it comes to, like, bands who have been around for a long time, even if they haven't been for a, around for a long time. You know, when they start to become, you know, a little bit more self-centered or self-involved and, and all of a sudden it's no longer about just the team it's about it's about me and what i can get and what's best for me and that tends to fracture a lot you know a lot of bands a lot of businesses a lot of partnerships a lot of marriages for that matter i think you're absolutely right there is something to the fact that you have to own your responsibility and your collective participation in any partnership it's all very much the same kind of thing absolutely you know it gets down to people yeah. People working with people. Now, people are feeling creatures. All about feeling. We're all about feeling. I think that's our purpose here. We're just spirits in, in bodies. And spirit, well, I assume, keeps going. But it's all about feeling. So relationships are very important, how you treat people and your interaction with them. They may not know why they like you. Who cares? They like you. They want you back. When I saw Lee Scott, I was, like, rattling off discography. So I did the same thing with... Uh, Lucas, I said, when I'm done with you, you're going to want to make out with me because, man, 
This, this intro <laughs> I have for you is sick. And I want to make sure it's obnoxiously sick so people realize, whoa, this guy did a lot. <laughs> and, you know, when you start seeing that, like a guy like Lee played on 14 records of one artist, I look at Lee and said, obviously, it's not just your bass playing. They like you. They want you around. Like I said, this is the third time that you and I have had to, had a chance to, to speak. The thing that always, it does, I, I don't want to say that it amazes me, but I think it's really admirable and really cool. You know, you and I both grew up in very small towns in Massachusetts. I grew up in the eastern part right. of the state. You grew up in Stockbridge. You know, yeah. there, there's a lot of people that, you know, have talent, and they, and they go through their life, you know, not developing the talent because they think, well, you know, I'm just a guy from Stockbridge. You know, and they have this, this defeated you know, small town mentality and they never let that get out of their way. A guy yeah. like you, you come out of, you come out of Stockbridge, you may not have been, you know, the most, you know, naturally gifted percussionist right. at, at UMass or, you know, Indiana or wherever you went, but there was something about you and your positivity and your, your optimism that let you push all that stuff away and, and to go for a dream that a lot of other people just simply don't do. Tell me about that and, and one, where that comes from and, and how you develop that throughout your whole life. Well, some of it is, you know, it's upbringing. Some of it is you're born a certain way. Upbringing has a lot to do with it because, you know, I was fortunate when my mom was um, very supportive. You know, never, you know, they, and my dad too because he didn't get in the way. He just didn't vo uh, vocalize it as much. But they let us, you know, they took us to lessons and they supported us on us when we played sports, and uh, they just were very supportive. So that took that out of the equation. Now, being a kid, when you're a little kid, you're insecure, you're you have fear, you you want to be a, a validated by everybody. Th those are to to go to go from transition from kid to adult. It, that, that's that's the lesson. Those are the life lessons. But I started out with support. That helps. And then my way. Of, this is me looking back and understanding. I learned that playing the drums and sports made me feel good. Cortisol levels went up, adrenaline went up, serotonin levels went up, oxytocin went up. All these were chemicals making me feel good. I didn't know that back then, but I look at it back and well, no wonder I went toward it. It always felt better than sitting in my room and moping. So I went to that. Then I realized at 18, it really, well, actually it was in high school, and I took chemistry and physics. I was terrified of, you know, getting, you know, I wasn't a great student until my junior, senior year, and I got straight A's. I learned how to study. You know, just looking at a page isn't enough. You have to learn it. So I wouldn't turn a page until I had it totally, totally understood it. I got an A- minus on my first quiz, and I started getting A's nonstop. Then I realized, oh, my God, if you apply yourself, if you do the work, you get the <laughs> results. You know, it's like zero equals zero. If you do nothing, you get nothing. Nobody's born successful. Success doesn't land in your lap. So what happened was by the time I was 18, the day I graduated high school, I was practicing, practicing eight hours a day, seven days a week in fear. I was way behind in my classical studies because that's what I was going to study at UMass and eventually four years at Indiana University, and one summer at the uh, Aston School of Music uh, Festival run by Juilliard, which I had to audition for, and finally got into Tanglewood after four years of auditioning, the most elite student orchestra in the country, if not the world. But it, it all came, I wasn't the most talented, 
But what I learned was because I love what I'm doing, you just apply yourself. Eight hours a day, two hours on mallets, two hours on timpani, two hours on snare drum, technique, reading, rudiments, all this stuff, two hours on drum set. What I noticed is that, you know, RPS, it's a system I, I call it now, RPS. The repetition of any skill is the preparation for success. You just apply yourself. You put in the time. You put in the hours. And you get better. That made me feel good. So I realized, wow, okay, I'm not the best. But if I practice longer and harder than everybody else, I'm like the turtle that creeps up, creeps <laughs> up and, and finishes the race. Once I learned that, so basically it's hard work, self-discipline, perseverance, driven by my love for what I do. So when I give uh, workshops or when I talk, I say, you know, your, your mission in life is to figure out why you're here. What are you doing? What the, what the friggin' are you doing here? You, when, you, when you figure that out, then you will be unstoppable, undeniable, and completely authentic. So I didn't know this when I was a kid. Thank God I did it. So you ask, well, then how do you develop this stuff? Well, now that I know it and I'm aware of what I did and what the actual method is, now I, I apply it. I coach myself. I self-coach. If, if we, you know, because even though I'm an adult and I've learned a lot, you always will go back to when you were a childhood. You always have that, those, those feelings of insecurity, fear, or that you're a loser or whatever. Well, what I do now is I replace all those thoughts or emotions with the new yeah. way. Oh, dude, dude, you're not a loser. You're a bad mofo. That's your old shit as a kid. Now as an adult, here's what you got to do. So I've learned these skills, and now I remind myself, hey, man, every time you put in the time, you win the Super Bowl. Just apply yourself and shut up. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's so funny to hear you talk like that because I remember taking drum lessons when I was like 12. And uh, I, I, I learned from this guy. He was an old cranky, crotchety, old jazz player, very talented guy, but just mean and just not, not a, a real nice fella. So, and I'll be the first to admit I was stupid because, you know, he wanted me to, you know, focus on rudiments and, you know, molar technique. And I just wanted to play with rush. Right. <laughs> and, 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 of course. Right. And it, it never occurred to me. It never occurred to me at the time. The reason why Neil Peart was so great is because he actually did work on rudiments and molar technique and all those things. And, you know, I, I wound up kicking myself many years later when I started to play again. And I realized, man, I really should have learned that stuff. And I, like you, I mean, I just went ahead and said, out of hell with it. I'm going to work on, on paradiddles for, you know, a couple of days straight. And it's what I did. But it's like when you're a kid, you don't always have that motivation or you, or you just see the world differently. And, 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 and that's one of the things that also tends to get in your way. Just the dumb shit that every teenager goes through. Oh, try to understand it. Yeah. I mean, look at life is about learning. So when you're a kid, how could you be born with all that knowledge? You aren't. And by the way, there is no like, Oh, if you take this pill, you're going to be uh, Tom Brady. Or if you take this pill, you'll be buddy rich. When you take this pill, you'll be, you know, uh, Dave Grohl. No, <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, and a lot of times we, 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 you know, as we get older, we're going, oh man, I should have, could have, would have when I was a kid. Well, that being like, you know, doing things that kids do is part of the lesson because 
you want to, you're doing it that way. And then hopefully if you get older and you get more experience, you go, Oh, that's not the best way to do it after all. <laughs> and then now you make the lesson that changes your life. Now you go, okay. Like I said, yeah. when I go to do my old habits, I've decided I made an agreement. I want to replace it with a new habit. And that's how you get the most efficiency and most you get the the best out of the life you live in. When you talked about you know some of your your speaking engagements, or even if you're just you know teaching a kid how to play to play drums or whatever it may be, do you find that they get that right away? Does that I mean does that sink into them immediately, or is it kind of the thing where you, you kind of give them a little bit of information and it it takes them to discover that or to get to that point where they say, ah, now I understand what Kenny's talking about. What I've noticed when I'm done with speaking, well, I mean, I'll just cut to the chase. No, not everybody gets it, and it all resonates different for different people. It's just whether you're at that point in your life where you're you're ready to receive it, um, or you know whether it resonates or not. So I'm throwing this stuff out there, and I can see on the faces the people going, "Oh my God!" One is like, "Oh my God, that's amazing! You're right." Or, "Oh my God, I've heard that my whole life, but now the way you're saying it." And you're explaining it in your story with Mick Jagger. Wow, I get it now. Oh, my God. So you, even though you played on 300 million records sold and, you know, I played with everybody, you know, blah, blah, blah. You went through all this stuff, too? Oh, wow. <laughs> and so then they go, my God, he's just, just another normal guy that just but became famous. And so different things will, you know, will make people see this, the thing they've been seeing the whole, their whole lives, but finally they see it. Other people, they just aren't ready yet. It just goes over their head. So I'm just throwing it out there, and and I love it when people come up to me, and this is happening more and more. They don't say, oh, my God, you blew me away on the drums. They go, oh, my God, you inspired me. That's what I want to hear because yeah. I already know how to play the drums. You know, <laughs> During my speaking events, I, I, I perform because that's what they want to they see that. And at the very, very, very end, I do what, you know, an encore after the encore, and it's a Buddy Rich track I recorded with the Buddy Rich Big Band called Straight No Chase, where I do a drum solo, and they don't expect it because they thought they saw me play already. And this is just a wow me moment. And that would be the time after I'm done where people come going, oh, my God, you drum solo. But more and more, they're going, man, geez, thanks so much. You inspired me. That's what I like hearing. And to back it up by showing them exactly, you know, what that kind of motivation and optimism has allowed you to do by playing and then showing to the, to the level of which you're capable of playing. I mean, it's just, it's a great tool to amplify what you're trying to tell them. You know, if yeah. I can do this, then, then yeah. you, know, you may be able to do what you need to do and what you're good at. Well, yeah. And then, you know, I tell them how, you know, I got in my story, I got crushed and fired and let down and, and, and I'm trying to show them like, why? Okay, I got a phrase. It goes like this. I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm going to spend my entire life trying to be as great as I can be. Now, what that is, the analogy I have for that is a running back in football. Those guys are badass athletes. <laughs> you try to stop them, they'll break you at every bone in your body. Do they get touchdowns every time they get the ball? Hell no. But they try every play, every game, every season. My point is, oh, and sometimes they get a touchdown, sometimes five yards, sometimes minus two. Sometimes they fumble. Sometimes they break their leg and they're out for the season. 
Well, they keep coming back. Why? Because they love football. That's their purpose in life. That's their bliss. That's their, 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 their truth, their passion. That's why I'm suggesting to people through my conversation and whatever to realize your purpose in life because that is the key to success and to staying successful. Because when you, why would a guy come back after breaking his leg? Because he still wants to get touchdowns because that's what he loves doing. And see, that's what keeps you going. That's my big message. You, you do what you love, and you keep going after it, you keep going after it, and that's how you overcome setbacks and obstacles and what people call mistakes and failures in life. One of the things that you and I have talked about before, and I think it, it kind of lends into this, and it, is the whole Jack and Diane story, you know, about the, yep. the, the drum fill you had. You've talked about how prior to, you know, that recession, you were worried that you were going to be replaced by drum machines or that you weren't cutting it or, you know, for, for whatever it was. But then that moment came when you were able to, to seize the moment. And it's, I mean, it sealed your fate. I mean, I mean, that drum yeah. fill alone sealed it all for you. You know, for a guy who may have had some level of self-doubt or even a little insecurity about, you know, where they fit in, you overcame that and created something that was not only timeless, but basically opened every possible door for you for the rest of your career. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay. For those who have heard the story, I'll, I'll try to make, paraphrase it real quick. So I'd just gotten in a Mellencamp band two years prior. In five weeks, we were in L.A. making a record, and I, got, I told everybody. You know, I turned down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. To, to, I turned down certain people, uncertainty. I had a paycheck. I had a job. And I went, nope, I want to I play in a rock and roll band because that's, when I saw the Beatles at age 10, that's what re- made me realize what my purpose is, but I didn't know how to get into the Beatles. That's obvious. So <laughs> the moment sort of was this long, dreary, slow four years getting out of college. So I got my big break with Mellencamp, and then I get fired after two days being in the studio because I had no experience making records. And the producer wanted to get the record done fast. They only had eight weeks. So I'm fired. I'm devastated, mortified. Refused to go home. John tells me to go home. I went, no way am I going home. And I said, I'm going to sit here and watch these guys play. And you don't have to pay me. And that's why he agreed. So two years after that, we're finally making the American Fool record with Jack and Diane. And it's a horribly painful record because John was uh, going through a divorce. John was about to lose his record deal again. And John almost died on a motorcycle accident going past me and the bass player a week before the session, 80 miles an hour in the dark on a country farm road in Indiana, dog jumps out, hits it. The bike, bike goes down. He's on top of the bike, spinning down the highway, hits the tree, explodes. But John jumps off at the last minute. Of course, we didn't see that. Right. All we saw was sparks and an explosion. We thought he was dead. Needless to say, he was in a crappy mood in the studio. <laughs> so it was not an easy record. Two buys got fired. I almost got in a fist fight with him because he was being a complete dick. And if I had, I would have been fired. Right after that, <laughs> I walked in the studio one day. It was nine weeks in the studio, Criteria in Miami. And the co-producer has this metal box. I went, Don, what's that? He says, oh, yeah, the Bee Gees are using it next door. It's a, a Lin One drum machine. It's the newest thing. I went, drum machine? Well, they replace drummers. I went, oh, my God, I'm starting to freak out. And that's where I turned into a fighter fight guy. I grabbed the machine. And I get the manual, and I program it. This is what I tell people, whether you're in music, sports, or business, is those adapt-or-die moments. 
To stay relevant in any business, you have to realize that things are changing, and you have to carpe diem, you have to seize the day. And I decided I could have walked in the you know, lounge and sulked and drank a beer and played pool. No way. I grabbed the machine. I want to be a part of this new thing. And, um, you know, the record wasn't, Jack and Diane wasn't even going to get on the record. It w- wasn't even going to do it. And, um, and so I programmed this machine, kind of playing, programmed what I'd already been playing. But, of course, it sounds different because it's a machine. And um, I hand it to them, and I'm sitting in the lounge going, wow, man, am I being replaced by a machine? Now it's just a horse and buggy business, and now the, the car showed up, and we're out. And then I get asked to come in the, to this big room, and John said, hey, man, we need a drum solo or a drum thing right after the second course. And I'm freaking out because, oh, my God, if I have to save the song to save my career. I figured I'd get fired again, which I probably would have been. Right, And I'm really freaking, and I thought, okay, what I learned two years prior was, hey, man, it ain't about you, dude. It's not about what you want to play. It's about what <laughs> is the best drummer for John Mellencamp or John Cougar Mellencamp music. It's not about what I want to play. It's about what can I do to get his song on the radio to be a number one hit. It's like, it's not, I have to serve him, the, the band, the artist, I mean, the, uh, the song, Serve the, the engineer, everybody. Serve you, serve me, serve we. And I didn't know that, but now I did. So I'm sitting there going, okay, okay, I got to get the song on the radio. I got to get the song on the record, <laughs> first of all. So yeah. I got to serve the song. What can I play that's going to make this thing amazing and pop out of those little speakers on TV sets and car stereos? So that's why I came in with machines going, doosh, 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 bam, doosh, 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 boom, blam, kick drum, snare drum, stop, and four. Boom, blam. Stop. Simple, powerful statement. I look in the control room. I got 18 thumbs up in the air. Nine guys. I went, wow, I did it. it saved my career. But I got to keep going. So I started trying all these different things, and I hit a dead end. I'm called into the control room, and I'm crapping in my pants. Nervous. And I got half the people telling me what to play. The other half telling me what not to play. I'm like, my head's spinning. Finally, I go, dude, it's up to you. You got to solve this. It's like being in the World Series. Right. Hit a home run, you're the hero. Strike out, you're the loser. So I'm walking toward the drums. I'm 40 feet away. I'm going, man, what are you going to play on 30 feet? I don't know. <laughs> dude, 20 feet. Dude, this is it. 10 feet. I'm nervous. I'm like, dude, you're going to lose your career. I get to the drums. I look at them. I look at the drums. I look at them. And I go, bam, a light goes off in my head. Says, I didn't have the answer, but I said, look, at, instead of coming up with something completely different, which I didn't know what that was, just try to take what you've already been doing and kind of rework it. And that's what I did. And along and short of it, like, for example, I went up the drums, didn't go down the drums. And I was using the rhythmic motive, motif that I was playing with the kick drum. Boom, boom, boom. But I just started it one eighth note later. One, two, three, four, one. Uh, uh, uh. All offbeat, same rhythm. And long and short of it is I came up with that drum fill. And that I was just excited that the song got on the record. But what happened back in those days, as you well know, you know, album-oriented rock stations would play every song on the record. They'd wait for the audiences or the listeners to call and say, hey, I like that one. Hey, I like that one. Well, Hurt So Good was number two on the top 100, but Jack and Diane was testing very high with the audiences around the USA. It goes to number one. And as you said, 
All of a sudden, John's career completely explodes. My career is launched. It's like, who is that drummer? Who's this guy? I'm on the number one hit single on the top 100. Not some stupid chart where they got 50 listeners. This was the big one. And if you were number one, you were on every radio station, every TV show, every everything. So, and, and so my career was launched, but I want to add one more thing to the story. When I heard that that song went to number one, I was excited for two, two seconds, and then I freaked out because I went, I'm not number one. I'm not that good. I need to do another song to prove everybody I'm number one. But John hasn't written a song. He's not going to write a song for another year. Oh, my God. I have to wait for another year to come up with a drum part for a song to make another number one hit single. It's kind of like the running back in football. If he scores a touchdown, that's not good enough. He wants to score another one. And so that mentality kept me going. I never believed it. I just thought, okay, I'm number one now, thank God, but i got to prove myself again. So after all that time between 1982, I think it was, 82, 81? Yeah, 82, 80, yeah. 82. From, from all that time forward, what would you consider to be your next big touchdown? Uh, I'd say, uh, well, the next record was Uh-Huh, had Crumbling Down, had Pink Houses, and had the Authority song on it. And those songs all placed very high on the charts. So now I felt like I was finding my sound, my feel. I mean, Pink Houses was an anthem. Um, I was learning how to come up with parts for John. Um, you know, after, so those songs did it. And then I was still nervous, always, because I always felt like I had to come up with something different. See, John, see, to, to solve, I mean, finding solutions to problems, Right. Whether it's a, you're on a basketball court or you're in a corporate boardroom meeting or you're on a rock and roll stage, requires creativity, creative ideas, creative and innovative ideas. And, and you, everybody has to contribute. So when John would play a song on acoustic guitar, and he'd be the first to tell you, every song sounds the same. And he'd turn around and look at me and go, what do you got, Aaron? After one listen. <laughs> the reason why he did that is because I made him very successful with Jack and Diane. It was his biggest number one hit single ever. And so at that point, he's looking for me to do it again. Why wouldn't he? Right? Right. right. So I was nervous. I mean, they all sound the same. So I came up with a method. And um, the method was always think of the obvious drum beat. And then number two, kind of, uh, you know, uh, modify it or, you know, embellish it. Number three, do it again. Embellish it even more. Now you got three ideas and four, think out of the box. Think of something completely different. Think about what Neil Peart would do with a song like this, you know. And then when John would turn around and go, like, what do you got? I go, how about this? He go, oh, that's a stupid beat. Uh, uh, how about this? Oh, that's cool. How about this? Oh, my God, it's even better. That's how I got around it. So I always was ready. Come on, I always had answers. <laughs> Never mind music. That's I mean, it's, that's a good lesson for for everybody. It's like you know, yeah. what what's what are you going to do to help everybody out, but yet still remain unique and relevant? And and to yeah. have been able to do that throughout your entire career, and then at, at various points in your career where you're playing, you know, a song where you and your style is so it, it can be identifiable. That's really hard to do with with anything. Never mind drums, and you've certainly been able to do that on many occasions where the only person who could do that job is Kenny Aronoff. Yeah. That, I mean, that's really something. 
Yeah, I mean, the method, these methods are applicable anywhere. That's the beauty of it all, you know, and um, I share that with my audience. Well, the last time we we spoke was right as the pandemic was uh, was kicking off. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, you know sessions and, and tours that were being you know canceled or pro- postponed. Now that we're kind of beyond that, is a lot of that work coming back, especially particular session work? Because I think so many musicians had a, the chance to figure out how to do it on their own. Has a lot of that work come back or is, or have times kind of changed with, with studio work? Well, I mean, you know, I used to be in the big studio seven days a week. I had drums in New York, Nashville, L.A., Indiana, where I live, Germany, and Japan. Well, those days all changed when the budget changed. People stopped buying records. So all the I'm on three records that sold $40 million each. Record labels are making $0.85 or $0.82 on the dollar. That's millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. With that money, they can invest in new bands, and then they can fly people like me around to make records and be on those records. Well, that changed. That's why Adapt or Die to stay relevant. I moved everything to L.A. and I got my own studio, Uncommon Studios L.A., and people send me files all over the world. Uh, you know, and then I record drums on uh, my my platform is, is Pro Tools. I'll record drums, you know, or I have an engineer. I do it like a real professional studio, and I send the tracks back to them. They pay me with PayPal or Venmo <laughs> or whatever, and uh, and that's how I do it now. Yeah. And now, instead of being in the studios, the big ones, big rooms seven days a week, I'm in there maybe seven times a year. That's it, because the budgets have changed. And I don't charge for my room. I just charge a fee. And and, uh, from, and that includes my room, my fee, and I pay the engineer per song. And so that was the new model. So when the pandemic hit, I was still recording. It was slowed down a little bit because people had to budget differently. But so I was already had already adapted and already was up and running. So and that and so yeah. Now, like for example, I came back from being on a ten week tour with Satriani. I had twelve songs to record for four different artists. I, I get I write all the charts out note for note, uh, and I recorded those songs in two days. Uh, I write every note out and I run through them the night before, and I walk in, I do two, three takes of every song. I'm done because I've already done it. I've already done my work, yeah. and it's a performance. So now I've got about five from one woman. So I got about seven songs keyed up to do when I come back from a week tour. I'm going to do, I'm going to do a week tour with Satriani, Boston. Uh, Jones Beach in Long Island, uh, Bethel Woods, and then Atlantic City, opening up for Steve Miller. And when so, I'll come back and I'll record those those seven songs, and by then there might be more than seven. That's you know? cool. That's very cool. So, me, I'm going to ask you about the uh, this Jim Irsay collection tour that uh, is that you're a part of. It's it's coming to Boston. Oh, yeah. It's coming to Boston on uh, in July at the TD Garden. Tell me a little bit of, uh, uh, about this. This is actually a pretty unique idea that that. Jim Irsay, of all people, came up with. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Jim is always, I've known him for 35 years, and, you know, uh, we've been really good friends with his dad on the team. I've been to 11 Super Bowls, traveled with the team. So we became friends. But music was always his, his big a passion as football. So he started collecting. Uh, when he took over the team, he started collecting incredible pieces. I was there when he collected Garrett Garcia's The Tiger or The Wolf. I can't remember. Guitar, you know, and 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 then he still collected more and collected more. And so he, he's now got this massive museum of artifacts from rock music to American history and pop culture. To, and, and, and what he does is like, 
you know, let's see, some of the things he's got, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. It's like, um, you know, it's got a, you know, musical equipment from Bob Dylan, the Beatles, James Brown, Prince, Eric Clapton, <laughs> Jimmy Hendrix, Elton John, Johnny Cash, Jerry Garcia, Les Paul, David Gilmore, Strat, Jim Morrison, Pete Townsend, Janis Joplin, John Coltrane, Kurt Cobain, the Edge, I mean, it goes on and on. But um, he's also got other crazy things like, um, you know, signed documents from U.S. presidents. He's got, um, he's got the eight, he bought the 1823 William J. Stone printing of the Declaration of the Independence. He's got, um, you know, Jack Kerouac's original 119-foot on-the-road scroll. He's got the big book, the original Alcoholics Anonymous book, uh, the 12-step program. He's got Jackie Robinson's game, you know, bat that he used from 1953. He's got Muhammad Ali's belt. And his, um, I think he's got his shoes from the Thriller from Manila. You know, I mean, and Secretariat saddle that won the uh, Triple Crown in 1973. Stuff like that, you know. But he's only got one Super Bowl ring, Kenny. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, that's a whole other thing. So what he does is he has this collection. He likes to show it around. Instead of having a brick-and-mortar building, he has a collection. He'll bring it to, like, we bring it to Boston. We've been, you know, New York. We've been to San Francisco. He'll set it up in a... You know, like a lot of times, a 2,000-seat venue, got to find the right venue. We could set it up where people could stand. And then he has a super group, you know, with me on playing drums, Billy Branch, a harmonica player with, you know, Taj Mahal and, and um, you know, buddy guy, Willie Dixon. He's got Tom Bukovac, one of the greatest guitar players in Nashville. Mike Mills from R.E.M., Danny Nucci, who's actually an, an actor. He was on the, the Titanic and The Rock. Right. Michael Ramos, who played keyboards with... Um, you know, Mellencamp, Paul Simon, Patty Griffin, Shell Crow, uh, Carmella Ramsey played violin and, and, and mandolin and vocals with Sweetwood McIntyre, John Hyatt, Livy Newton John. Of course, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, I don't need to say more. Yep. Mike Wanchek with Mellencamp. And then we have special guests like, you know, Vince Gill, Kevin Crone, and uh, they'll be, the, actually, Vince Gill, Kevin Crone from Mario Speedwagon, and Jay Giles will be at the one in Boston. But wow. we've had like you know, and Stephen Sills. But we've had like you know, um, you know Billy, Billy Gibbons and Ann Wilson and Buddy Guy and John Mellencamp, you know, to name a few. And we do this uh, like two and a half hours, sometimes three hour concert, and it's it's awesome. It kicks butt, and everybody gets to see a variety of music and a variety of artists. Each artist does about four songs. Now, if, if I'm if I'm not wrong about this, let me know. The tickets for these shows have been free. Yeah, yeah, it's free. He he, he likes to give it away. I mean, it's a, this is at the Boston's uh, TD Garden. I don't <laughs> even know what that is, but I'm from Massachusetts, but I've never been there. Yeah, well, I and mean, that'll be on July 15th um, from 6 p.m. to 11, and um, it's free. Where, where can you get a, a concert of any kind that's for free? <laughs> I know. Well, this is what this is what Jim does. He loves it. He loves to do this. He wants. And by the way, like the Gilmore guitar, when we play a uh, we play a, a song uh, that Gilmore recorded, you know, we we bring that guitar on stage and Kenny Wayne plays it. Wow. I think we're doing comfortably numb, you know, that's from crazy. Pink Floyd. So there's the guitar. He doesn't like just hide the instruments. He's got them right there, and and we use them. It's so cool. Of course, they won't let me use Ringo Starr's kit from the Ed Zolman jokes. I'll destroy it. But 
you know. I was going to say they probably give you something that's a little bit, probably a little bit newer and not so uh, so so splintery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I sat down on that kit once. Tom Bukovac suckered me into playing the kit because he wanted to use it for his YouTube channel. And everybody from the Colts came running, no, no. I went, don't worry, I'm not going to hit hard. I see these original heads. Bass drum beater doesn't even reach the, the bass drum. So they were all freaking out because I hit so hard. But I didn't when I played that. No way. That's great. Kenny, I, I know I don't, I don't want to keep you all day long, but I, I do appreciate the time today. And Awesome, uh, dude. I, it's awesome. always a pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck on the 15th in Boston, the TD Garden with the Jim Irsay Collection. Oh, man. Thank you. Always great talking to you. All right, man. All right, Take Ken. care. Kenny Aronoff and the Jim Irsay Collection are coming to the TD Garden in Boston on July 15th. It's an absolutely free show. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also reach me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks again to ZM Home Buyers at ZNMHomes.com, and thanks for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.